Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. At 2.50 p.m. on April 4, 1943, 25 B-24 bombers from the 376th Bomb Group took off on a high-altitude bombing run over the harbor facilities in Naples, Italy. All the planes returned safely from that mission, except one. That plane was called the Lady Be Good. For years, no one knew what the Lady Be Good's fate was. That mystery wouldn't be solved until nearly 16 years later, on November 9, 1958, when a team of British geologists discovered the lady's wreckage in the Libyan desert. The geologists were on a scouting mission approximately 400 miles south of Salouche, when they spotted what appeared to be a large aircraft in the sand. In March 1959, a ground crew was sent to the location where the plane had been spotted, only to discover a nearly intact World War II B-24 bomber. Evidence pointed toward a tragic fate for the nine-man crew of the Lady Be Good. It appeared that the crew had become lost in their way back to base. They then overshot their destination and kept flying south into the desert. Once their fuel supply ran out, the crew bailed out, forcing the plane to land on its belly, tearing itself apart before coming to its final resting spot in the sand. It would take several more intensive searches to discover the remains of the crew. By 1968, of the crewman's remains were found. One crewman's skeleton was discovered near the plane, while the other seven were discovered far to the north. Five of the men managed to make an astonishing 78-mile trek across the sun-scorched desert with little food or water before perishing. One man actually managed to continue even further traveling a remarkable 109 miles from the plane. The body of the ninth crewman was never found. But that's not the end of the story for the Lady Be Good. Because of the dry desert climate, many of the plane's components remained largely in great shape. They were in such great shape, in fact, that the U.S. Air Force decided that many of these components could be salvaged and used as spare parts for other aircraft. But that's where the problems began. Three planes that received spare parts from the Lady Be Good all fell victim to their own misfortune. One of the three planes narrowly managed to get away in one piece, but only after being forced to ditch its cargo and make an emergency landing. A transport plane which contained a radio from the Lady Be Good crashed into the Mediterranean. Its crew was forced to bail out over the ocean in a series of events that eerily paralleled that of the Lady Be Good. The third plane, a C-47 Skytrain transport plane, disappeared over the Mediterranean along with its entire crew. One of the only pieces of wreckage that was found was an armrest that washed ashore on a Libyan beach. That armrest bore serial numbers that could be traced back to having once belonged to the Lady Be Good. 
Once word began to spread about the Lady Begood's discovery, a number of souvenir hunters began to seek out looted artifacts from the plane. This was soon followed by a number of unsubstantiated rumors that some of these would-be souvenir hunters suffered their own series of tragic accidents and bad luck. In response to the plane's looting, the Libyan government moved the plane's wreckage to an airbase for protection, where it remains to this day. Over time, rumors began to spread that the Lady Be Good's wreckage was cursed and that anyone who looted the plane's remains would suffer a terrible fate. Now it's impossible to say whether there really was any sort of curse surrounding the plane's parts. After all, logic dictates that curses aren't real. Airplanes are complex machines and can crash for all sorts of reasons. But at the very least, it is a curious series of coincidences. One person who heard the story of the Lady Be Good's discovery and was inspired by it was television icon Rod Serling, who turned the tale into the classic episode of the Twilight Zone titled, King Nine Will Not Return. Typically, when we think of hauntings and cursed objects, we don't tend to think of modern machinery. Books and movies have conditioned us to imagine settings such as creepy old haunted houses or haunted objects like possessed dolls. But the story of the Lady Be Good isn't the only time stories like these have emerged. In fact, it's happened a lot more recently than you might think. Back in December 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a nearly brand new L-1011 luxury liner, took off in what should have been a typical flight from New York to Miami. Except upon the plane's approach to Miami International Airport, a tragic series of events occurred, causing the plane to crash into the swampy Florida Everglades. Of the 176 people on board that night, only 75 survived. The story of the crash of Flight 401 is a tragic story all on its own. But over the years that followed, several passengers and crew aboard a number of other Eastern Airlines flights began reporting seeing the ghosts of the deceased passengers and crew of Flight 401. I'm Nate Hale, inviting you to come fly the deadly skies with me. And this is The Conspirators. The Florida Everglades spans more than one and a half million miles across South Florida. It's one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet with countless species of plants and wildlife. But nighttime is when the place really comes alive. In some parts of the Everglades, the sound of frogs at night can be almost deafening. Late in the evening, you can hear their chorus for miles around. On the night of December 29, 1972, Bob Marquis was out frog gigging with a buddy named Roy Dickinson on Bob's airboat. Bob was a former fish and wildlife officer, and he knew the glades like the back of his hand. That night, Bob took his boat skimming across the water and cutting through the razor-sharp sawgrass looking for frogs in a location about 20 miles northwest of Miami. From here, the bright lights of the city were just a faint glow in the distance. When Bob found a good spot to catch some frogs, he slowed the boat to a crawl. After a few minutes, he happened to glance to the north when he saw something that caught his attention. 
He could see the lights of a large jetliner, probably out of Miami International based on its general direction. The lights along the plane's belly stood out against the pitch-black night sky. Bob could tell the plane was flying low in the distance, and it appeared as if it were getting lower. After a moment, Bob realized the plane was indeed coming in at a downward angle toward the swamp. Bob froze up as he realized what was about to happen next. For a moment, there was darkness. Then the plane disappeared from view, and a massive golden fireball erupted in the distance. That plane was Eastern Airlines Flight 401. The aircraft was a practically new Lockheed L-1011, one of the flagships of Eastern Airlines' fleet. At a cost of around $20 million each, these jumbo jets were considered to be the height of aviation technology and luxury at the time. Some of the features included generous headroom, a built-in sound system for each passenger, an elevator that led to a lower kitchen galley, and a state-of-the-art autopilot system that was capable of landing the plane without manual control. The L-1011s had only been in service for a couple years by that point in history. And Eastern Airlines had only just added the L-1011 to its fleet eight months earlier. The planes were considered so relatively quiet compared to other jumbo jets, they referred to them as whisper liners. On the night of December 29th, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 took off from New York's JFK Airport on a routine flight to Miami International. Earlier that day, the plane had undergone some routine maintenance at JFK. Although the plane had been cleared for takeoff and was thought to be mechanically sound. The captain of Flight 401 was 55-year-old Robert Bob Loft. He was a seasoned pilot with more than 29,000 hours of flight time under his belt. 280 of those hours had been logged on the L-1011. He had worked for Eastern Airlines for 32 years and was 50th in seniority for the company. Flight 401's first officer was Albert John Burt Stockstill. At age 39, First Officer Stockstill had logged 5,800 hours of flight time, with 306 of those in the L-1011. Rounding out the three-man crew was 51-year-old flight engineer Donald Lewis Repo, another experienced officer with more than 15,000 hours in the air, with 53 of them in the L-1011. In addition to the three-man crew, there was also another Eastern Airlines officer on board. He was 47-year-old technical officer Angelo Donadeo. Angelo was traveling back to Miami from a work assignment in New York, flying for free as an off-duty officer in a practice known as deadheading. At 11.32 p.m., Captain Loft began directing the plane towards approach into Miami International when he attempted to lower the landing gear. First Officer Bert Stockstill noticed immediately that only two of the three green indicator lights that told the cabin crew the landing gear were down and locked in place did not turn on. It was the third light for the forward landing gear in the nose of the plane that didn't come on. Later on, the National Traffic Safety Board would determine that this was simply a case of a burned-out light bulb. But this tiny piece of faulty equipment would kick off a series of events that would ultimately result in the plane crashing into the Florida Everglades. Of the 176 people on board Flight 401 that night, only 75 would survive. There were a number of things that happened that night which added up to disaster. Captain Loft radioed into Miami Air Traffic Control and told them he needed to abort the landing until they could determine if the landing gear was actually down or if the equipment was faulty. 
Air traffic control ordered Captain Loft to bring the plane to an altitude of 2,000 feet and to direct the plane to the west out of the path of other incoming air traffic. From there, the plane was put into what is known as a racetrack pattern. Then as the flight crew all got together working on the landing gear problem, Captain Loft engaged the plane's sophisticated autopilot system. As modern as the autopilot was, there was actually one additional unknown mechanical problem with it, which would only add to the tragic chain of events. Both the pilot and co-pilot had their own autopilot controls, each of which could be disengaged by nudging the plane's steering. One relatively minor issue that turned out to have major consequences was that the computer controlling each autopilot system was calibrated slightly differently for the first officer's position than the captain's. This meant that it took slightly less force on the first officer's controls to disengage than the pilot's controls did. It also meant that under the right circumstances, the captain's autopilot would not indicate to him that the co-pilot's autopilot wasn't engaged. Second officer Don Repo was forced to go down into the tight lower avionics bay beneath the plane's cabin, known as the hellhole, where he could peer out through a small window to see if the forward landing gear was really down or not. In the meantime, Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill got out of their seats and began taking apart the panel the landing control bulb was attached to, in order to see if the bulb was faulty or not. It appears that at some point when Captain Loft bent over, he must have bumped into First Officer Stockstill's controls, taking the plane out of autopilot and sending it on a downward trajectory that was so slight no one noticed. The NTSB was able to piece together a lot of what happened after that based on cockpit voice recordings, data gathered from the plane's new black box technology, as well as Miami air traffic control records. As the plane lost altitude, there actually was a warning chime that went off in the cabin. But that warning indicator was situated back next to 2nd Officer Don Repo's seat. And since he was down in the noisy hellhole, he didn't hear it go off. Neither did Captain Bob Loft, or First Officer Bert Stockstill. By now, Technical Officer Angelo Donadeo had joined Don Repo down in the cramped hellhole. This is what was thought to have saved both their lives, at least for a little while. Don Repo survived the plane crash, but he would die of his injuries in the hospital the following day. Angelo Donadeo suffered substantial injuries, but eventually recovered. Fifty seconds after the warning chime about the plane's loss of altitude went off, the plane was now below 1,000 feet over the Florida Everglades. Bert Stockstill returned to the controls and began to turn the plane 180 degrees when it finally began to dawn on him that the plane was on a downward trajectory. He tried to alert Captain Loft and air traffic control as he pulled up, but by then it was too late. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades at a speed of 227 miles per hour. They were approximately 18 and one-half miles from Miami International Airport. The left wingtip hit the swampy ground first, followed by the port engine, then the plane's underbelly. Two of the plane's landing gear were sheared off, and the plane's port engine disintegrated within seconds. The plane's wreckage tore a massive trench through the mud as pieces of the plane broke apart. This was followed by a massive explosion that lit up the night sky. Bob Marquis saw the fireball erupt in the distance. He immediately cranked up his airboat's engines to full throttle and sped off in the plane's direction. Bob was a genuine hero that night. He suffered severe burns on his face and hands, but he still worked tirelessly until dawn dragging survivors out of the water and onto his boat. 
He continued to do this even after the official rescue operation was on the scene. As the night wore on, Bob would lose track of his frog-gigging companion, Roy Dickinson. He didn't see Roy again until morning, and after that the two men drifted apart and never spoke again. What Bob Marquis drove his boat into was nothing short of a horror show. The plane's wreckage was scattered across a debris field nearly a mile long. There were corpses and severed limbs floating in the water. Some of the dead were children. As terrible as the sight of all this death was, it was the survivors that Bob focused on. All around, Bob could hear the moans and desperate cries for help from people around him, who stood or sat partially submerged in the knee-deep water. Captain Bob Loft was among those who survived the initial crash, but he would soon die of his injuries in the wreckage. There were even some reports that came out later claiming a few of the passengers were picked off by hungry alligators congregating in the area. As Bob Marquis shined his headlamp around the wreckage, he was shocked to see a man standing naked in the water. Somehow the man had lost his clothes in the crash. There were a few other naked people standing around too, looking bewildered and terrified. Bob hauled the first man up into his airboat and gave him some hot coffee from his thermos. He wouldn't be the last. Bob himself got into the water, which was now swirling with a layer of jet fuel, and began wading through the muck, helping the survivors. One of the surviving flight attendants realized there was so much jet fuel around, she shouted a warning for everyone to avoid lighting any matches. There were eight surviving flight attendants in total. They, along with Bob Marquis, did their best to help the living. They sang Christmas carols with them, both to keep their spirits up and also to help the rescue operation locate them in the dark. It was Bob Marquis' headlamp that helped guide the first rescue helicopter toward the crash site. But when the chopper came in too close, the propeller blades whipped up the water and sent dangerous shrapnel flying through the air. Bob helped guide the copter to a safe landing site. The National Traffic Safety Board would ultimately declare the crash to be the result of a combination of pilot error and a tragic series of events. If there's any silver lining to the story, it's that the string of events leading up to the crash would bring about improved safety regulations and additional safety features that would be added to the plane's cockpit to ensure that a crash like this would never happen again. Back in 2007, a reporter from the Tampa Bay Times tracked down Bob Marquis, now physically ill and living in poverty in his tiny house with his wife. The reporter asked Bob about his heroism that night. Bob told the reporter that he didn't really think of himself as a hero, and he just did what he thought was right. Later on, Bob's wife would tell the reporter how she thought the events of that night still haunted him. But if the stories that followed the crash of Floyd 401 wanted to be believed, then Bob Marquis wasn't the only one haunted by the tragic events that evening. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsors. If you're 50 or older, listen up. Did you know that Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance provides valuable whole life insurance protection to help cover your final expenses? It's true. And it can help with expenses such as medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debts. It helps protect your family from the financial burden of your final expenses. If you're between 50 and 80 years old or 50 to 75 in New York, your coverage is guaranteed with this policy regardless of your health history. There are no medical exams to complete or lengthy health questionnaires to fill out. 
Simply visit GerberLifeFamily.com. And premiums don't increase over time. The amount you pay when coverage begins is the same amount you'll pay throughout the duration of your policy. Just answer four easy questions to get your free personalized quote instantly by visiting GerberLifeFamily.com. See website for terms and restrictions. Hey, listeners. Have you ever heard of data brokers? They're the middlemen collecting and selling all those digital footprints you leave online. They can stitch together detailed profiles which include your browsing history, online searches, and location data. They then sell your profile off to a company who delivers you a targeted ad. No biggie, right? Well, you might be surprised to learn that these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeland Security and the IRS. I, for one, don't want the tax man showing up at my door because of some search I did on my phone. So to mask my digital footprints, I protect myself with ExpressVPN. One of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address, which also reveals information about your location. When you're connected to ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. That makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. That's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all my devices, phone, computer, and even my home Wi-Fi router. All I do is tap one button to turn it on and I'm protected. It's that easy. So make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com TC right now and get three extra months free through my special link. That's expressvpn.com TC expressvpn.com slash tc to learn more and now back to the show over the months that followed the crash of flight 401 several rumors began to circulate about the doomed aircraft for one thing some stories claimed that because of parts shortages at the manufacturer many of the non-essential components that survived the crash were gathered up and reused in other Eastern Airlines L-1011 airplanes. These were items like serving carts and even the intact ovens from the lower galley. Over time, a related rumor began spreading that several passengers and crew aboard these same L-1011 aircraft began seeing full-bodied apparitions of people who vanished before their eyes. In addition, there were some stories claiming a few people on board Flight 401 that night had terrible premonitions of the airliner's fate. One story claimed that about a year before the crash, Captain Bob Loft was out working in his garden when he got a mysterious phone call from someone who didn't identify himself. This mysterious voice warned Bob that he was destined to die in a plane crash soon. Bob mentioned the unusual phone call to his wife and a few friends, but just brushed it off after that. Doris Elliott was one of the flight attendants who survived the crash of Flight 401. About two weeks before the plane crash, Doris was working on board a different flight when she had a premonition that made her physically ill. She later told co-workers she had a sudden and overpowering vision of being on board an L-1011 that was flying low over the Everglades as it approached Miami International Airport. She could tell it was late at night because she could see the black sky through the plane's windows. Her vision soon shifted to that of the plane crashing into the Florida swamp. She saw the left wing disintegrate and the fuselage tear a trench through the marshy ground. The screams of the passengers in her mind made her feel physically ill and forced her to sit down. 
When two of her fellow flight attendants rushed to Doris's aid and she told them what she had just experienced. For a couple weeks after, Doris said she managed to put this dark vision out of her mind. But after the plane crash, Doris and the people she told about her vision vividly recalled what she had told them. If you're like me and you watch a lot of horror movies, you know that most ghost stories can typically be broken down into two categories. The ghosts that are trying to harm you, and the ghosts that are trying to tell you something really important. According to many real-life paranormal investigators, it can be a lot more difficult to determine a disembodied spirit's motivations. There are some stories of the ghosts of Flight 401 attempting to warn the living of potential disaster. But in other cases, the ghost simply appeared then disappeared with no apparent cause or motive behind it. Some ghosts, paranormal experts claim, act like lingering memories, almost like a videotape stuck in a loop, forever tied to a location or, in the case of Flight 401, to the parts of Flight 401 that remained. Some purported psychic mediums claim to possess the ability known as psychometry. That's the ability to speak to ghosts or have visions of the past by touching an object tied to an event. The idea is that there is some residual energy after a person dies that somehow attaches itself to objects in the physical world. This is what was theorized by author John G. Fuller, who wrote a book on the hauntings titled The Ghost of Flight 401. Much of the original reporting about the ghost sightings on a number of Eastern Airlines flights comes to us from Fuller's book. But to some skeptics, the very fact that Fuller wrote the book is enough to invalidate anything in it. Prior to writing The Ghost of Flight 401, Fuller's most famous book was probably The Interrupted Journey, his nonfiction account of the alleged alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. This was another book skeptics dismissed out of hand. While Fuller was researching his book, one person he spoke to was someone he had previously interviewed for The Interrupted Journey and other books he'd written on UFOs. This was Professor J. Allen Hynek, the official scientific consultant for the U.S. Air Force's legendary Project Blue Book. When Fuller told Hynek he thought he might experience even more ridicule writing about ghosts than he did when he wrote about flying saucers, Professor Hynek had this to say. The problem I see with anything like this is the general assumption we know everything that's possible to know, and that everything beyond our present scientific knowledge is simply non-existent, or we would already know it. Fifty or a hundred years from now, scientists will be laughing at our theories, just as we now laugh at some of the theories of a century ago. In the case of ghosts and hauntings, Fuller felt that he had some scientific basis for his belief that ghosts from Flight 401 were somehow attached to the recovered parts from the crashed plane. Fuller pointed to research done by a scientist named Wilder Penfield, who pioneered new techniques into the treatment of epilepsy. Penfield also wrote that he believed the electrical signals of the brain might somehow be able to continue on past death. Over time, Fuller and his research assistant began to document stories from Eastern Airlines employees and passengers who claimed to have seen full-bodied apparitions on board other Eastern Airlines flights. One of these was told by an Eastern Airlines vice president who said one day he boarded his flight from New York and chatted with a pilot whom he assumed was part of the flight crew. Later on, he realized the person he'd been speaking to was none other than Bob Loft, the captain of Flight 401. One of the Eastern Airlines planes where the majority of the ghost sightings occurred was number 318. One day, one of the senior flight attendants was doing her pre-flight count in the first-class cabin when she realized her count was off by one. 
There was an extra passenger sitting in one of the seats who didn't belong there. The unidentified passenger was dressed in a pilot's uniform and acted dazed and unresponsive to the attendant. When she asked him his name and if he had a ticket for this flight, the flight attendant summoned the captain to speak to the man. The captain emerged from the cockpit and was shocked when he got a look at the mysterious passenger. He knew this man, only this was impossible. Because he knew for a fact that the man he was staring at was dead. It was Bob Loft, once again. For a while, Captain Bob Loft was one of the most regularly seen ghosts reported on other Eastern Airlines planes. One flight attendant told Fuller she shrieked one day when she opened one of the overhead compartments, only to see Bob Loft's disembodied face staring back at her. Over time, though, another deceased member of Flight 401's crew began being seen as well. One day, about three months after the accident, one of the flight attendants was down in the service galley of Flight 318. This was an area outfitted with a pair of glass-doored, stainless steel ovens. Some reports claim that at least one of these ovens was actually recovered from the wreck of Flight 401. While down in the service galley, one of the flight attendants began to suddenly feel incredibly cold, despite the heat of the dual ovens. Then she began to feel as if there was someone else down there with her. She assumed it was one of her fellow flight attendants, but no one else was there. After a few minutes, this overwhelming feeling of dread became too much for her, and she had to exit the galley. She refused to go back down there for the remainder of the flight. Doris Elliott, the very same flight attendant who had once had a premonition about the crash of Flight 401, was working aboard Flight 318 when she had her own strange experience. Now, some of you might think that after surviving a plane crash that you'd never want to get on board another plane, much less another L-1011 ever again. But the way Doris looked at it, the odds were stacked in her favor that she'd never be in another plane crash ever again. One day she was working down in the service galley of Flight 318 when she noticed how uncomfortably cold it became down there. This, despite the heat the ovens were giving off. She called the flight engineer to come down and confirm what she was feeling. He too said it was unusually cold down there, despite the fact the thermometer stated it was over 90 degrees Fahrenheit down in the galley. The flight engineer was puzzled by this, but he assumed whatever the problem was could be fixed by maintenance after they landed. As the weeks went on, some flight attendants began reported seeing hazy mist on board Flight 318, and sometimes this mist would solidify into a human shape. A few weeks after Doris Elliott experienced the cold spots down in the galley, probably the most shocking ghost encounter occurred on Flight 318 during a flight to Mexico City. One of the flight attendants was down in the galley when she suddenly cried out because there was a man's face staring at her from inside the oven door. She summoned two of the other crew members to come down to the galley to prove she wasn't crazy. Both of them saw the ghostly face in the glass as well. One of the crewmen even recognized the face staring back at him. It was Don Repo, the flight engineer from Flight 401. Moments later, the ghost of Don Repo issued a warning to them all that they should watch out for fire on this plane. Now, there was no fire on board Flight 318 that day, but on the return flight, one of the engines did fail and had to be shut down. During that same return flight, another one of the flight attendants said she saw a flight engineer she didn't recognize fixing the oven down in the galley. But when she reported this to the flight engineer and the cabin crew, he said he didn't know what she was talking about. He was the only engineer on board, and he hadn't touched the ovens. Later on, that flight attendant was shown a series of photographs of Eastern Airlines employees, and she selected one from the stack as the man she'd seen. It was Don Repo. For a while, Don Repo seemingly became Flight 318's guardian angel. 
One day, the crew were in the cockpit discussing the day's flight when they discovered Don Repo was sitting there with them. Repo warned the others that the plane had a faulty electrical circuit. He was right, too. The circuit was located and replaced. Bob was also seen doing the standard pre-flight checks of the plane, and even spoke to the ground crew, letting them know the plane was good for takeoff. The pilot was so unnerved by all these incidents that he canceled the flight. On yet another flight, the pilot began hearing some loud knocks coming from down in the avionics bay. He opened the hatch and looked down only to see Don Repo looking up at him. Repo's ghost promptly disappeared. Upon further inspection, the crew found another mechanical problem down in the bay that could have caused a major accident. All these sightings were entered into the various planes' logbooks and reported in an official flight safety publication. When asked about these ghost stories, Eastern Airlines CEO Frank Borman called them a load of crap. Borman was a former NASA astronaut. While he was a senior vice president with Eastern, he had actually been on the ground helping in the rescue operations following the crash of Flight 401. When Fuller began seeking interviews with other Eastern Airlines employees regarding the ghost sightings, he began to suspect there was a cover-up going on. Many employees refused to talk to him, telling him they'd lose their jobs and even be permanently grounded if they openly admitted they'd been seeing ghosts. Fuller also began to realize that many of the logbooks from the L-1011 flights where ghosts had been seen had gone missing. Fuller discovered that over time, all of the salvaged parts from Flight 401 were removed from the aircraft. Seemingly as a result, the spirits of Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again. Over the years, there have been a number of skeptics who say there is nothing to all the ghost stories. Author Robert Serling wrote a book detailing the complete history of Eastern Airlines from 1935 on, during which he touches on the reported ghost sightings on board the L-1011 aircraft. An Eastern representative told Serling they spent weeks researching all the claims of ghosts on their planes, and they said they couldn't find a single person to corroborate any of the stories. But, let's face it, Eastern Airlines also had a financial incentive to ensure that nothing scared away the passengers. Author Robert Serling tried to track down the origin of the story about the face in the oven warning the crew of a fire on board, and couldn't find much evidence to substantiate it either. Robert Serling, I should point out, is someone who probably should know a thing or two about ghosts and the supernatural. He was, after all, the big brother of television legend Rod Serling, creator of the Twilight Zone. So where does that leave us? Eastern Airlines dissolved in 1991, and even by then, all the reports of ghostly apparitions had long since stopped. Robert Serling believed he had figured out the source of all the ghost stories when he tracked down the pilot of one of Eastern Airlines L-1011s, who had a close call during one flight that caused an emergency landing. That pilot jokingly said, Scary, for a minute I thought Don Repo's ghost was on the plane. Other skeptics have pointed out that, at face value, it seems ludicrous that Eastern Airlines would have used salvage parts from one of their crashed planes on other flights. And yet, there is evidence of this as well. In 2010, a website dedicated to the history of Eastern Airlines, and in particular Flight 401, posted photos from an engineer's control panel that was pulled from another L-1011 out of Germany. The photos clearly show a yellowed Lockheed inspection sticker, dated October 30, 1972, about two months before the crash. They also show a serial number, which can conclusively be tracked directly back to Flight 401. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Lucas for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, 
including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes, the next of which will be dropping not long after this one. Another great way you can help support the show that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in the podcasting charts and spreads the good word to more people. Currently, you can find The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and if you're hearing this on the day it's released, Happy Halloween!